This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This, of course, is Matt Splained. Crisps and couches are back on the menu for Matt Splain this week, which probably means that resident futurist Matt Armitage has failed in his task to understand the quantum internet. With Malaysia in lockdown, we take a look at the science of motivation, as well as the latest thinking around mindfulness to ask why some people are simply better at getting on with things. So Matt, um, good week watching Netflix. Yeah, hey, Rich, uh, I know where you're going with this. And no, it isn't a failure to understand the quantum internet. Uh, this is actually something that I came across while I was looking at the quantum internet. And it actually uh, makes... Uh-huh. Yeah, so it makes more sense to talk about this now because we're in the first phase of this new lockdown. And on the one hand, it speaks to why some people, uh, not me, uh, are so good at getting things done, whether it's that drive to work or to propel a business or to keep that sense of focus you know when someone tells you you're not allowed to leave your home uh, and not to become that crisp eating monster watching friends for the 15th time and not really sleeping anymore Uh, for many of us um, mostly me with that very specific example it is a worry you know I've had friends tell me that they enjoy being able to wear the same t-shirt for three days in a row and only bathed sporadically and while I don't want to limit anyone's personal choices that doesn't sound especially healthy to me. Um, Is it really something to worry about though? The t-shirt thing uh, probably not you know we've heard about all sorts of trends that people have tried out over the last year Uh, for example not using soap and shampoo uh, when you shower because they strip the body of its natural oils. Mm -hmm. I'm not Sure, but when I read stories like that, they tend to be about people who have the luxury of living in countries that are essentially cold. Uh, You know, I I do wonder if uh, that attitude uh, would be the same if they lived somewhere like Malaysia, where you're sweating constantly. Um, You know, certainly I feel uh, better after a good scrub, whether I've got any natural oils left on my skin or not. Which I suppose brings us back to motivation, as your mind is obviously wandering again, Matt. My mind doesn't wander, it's just curious. But it is curious how some people manage to stay so focused. You know, we've long wondered if it's something genetic at that individual level, whether it's to do with brain chemistry, or whether it's simply a learned behaviour. And certainly there's that entire motivational industry that's based around the idea that we can learn techniques and habits that will enable us to make more of our potential or something. So, in a sense, this kind of links uh, back to what we were talking about on the show last week. Um, Digital retailers and the venture industry funding them are betting that habits that we've learned during the pandemic will be retained over the long term. Well, yeah, and it's not simply a case of seeing these things from a different perspective or as different dimensions. When we talk about motivation, there's often a commercial aspect to that conversation. We see motivated and driven people as being more likely to succeed in their working lives, their professional lives. Now, that might be right, that might be wrong. Startups don't necessarily fail because of a lack of motivation from the people running them. Neither is it as simple as a discussion about good ideas versus bad ideas, Mm. which is why I think it's interesting to look at what motivation is 
from that scientific standpoint. So let me ask you, how motivated are you? Are you the kind of person who can get up early to go for a run or to get that TikTok video done or even to get that new podcast up and running? I feel like you're calling me out here, Matt. Um, I'm actually more, weirdly, I'm more motivated to do things for other people than I am for myself. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of us find uh, the same. You know, I, I'm terrible when it comes to doing those things for myself. You know, my mm. ideas pile and my actualization pile are horrendously imbalanced. And as much as I joke about Netflix and the couch and all of that kind of thing, a big part of my job is popular culture. So just what you were saying about doing things for other people, you know, I'm not saying that there's some big master plan to me sitting down and watching TV or surfing the net or reading a book. But that's actually where the spark for a lot of these shows comes from. And that's why we're talking about motivation and mindfulness today, because instead of writing that novel or screenplay or putting the finishing touches to that new podcast, I was knocking about online and started looking at the threads that sort of connect mindfulness and motivation. So by that, you meant knocking around on the New Scientist website. Uh, thank you for doing my attribution work for me. Um, <laughs> yes, I took a lot of inspiration from an article called uh, Can't Be Bothered, so you can see why I was attracted to that title. Uh, it does also suggest that the New Scientist is getting better at coming up with headlines, so maybe they've been listening to what we've been saying on this show. Mm. Um, so that piece was written by Amelia Tate, and she makes it clear that a lot of people do feel this way. So she quotes from a, a Pew Research Center study from December last year, which found that 42% of those surveyed in the US between the ages of uh, 18 and 49, and that top age range uh, covers your age group, Richard, and the bottom end, of course, covers me. Uh, those 42% <laughs> found it hard to uh, find the motivation to work during that first pre-vaccine block of the pandemic. Why is it so hard to figure out what motivates us? Partly because there are so many factors at play, and the factors that motivate one person aren't the factors that are going to motivate somebody else. So we run that full gamut of nature versus nurture. So if we could neatly say that there was a genetic cause, that would make things so much easier. Like the existence of a motivation gene? Well, yeah, so that I could simply say, I don't seem to have it uh, in the same way that you know, I don't have that gambling or addiction gene, or mm. I assume that I don't, maybe I'm just not fun. Uh, just, you know, just because there isn't a specific gene, it doesn't mean that there isn't a genetic component. So a 2015 study of 13,000 sets of twins between the ages of nine and 16, and I'm quoting from the new scientist here, found that up to 50% of the differences between them in terms of uh, the motivation to learn could be ascribed to genetic factors. But the issue then is how do you create that checklist that describes the causes of that other 50%? Mm. So, you know, a lot of the markers that we typically use, for example, things like class, uh, economic status, they don't actually confer any kind of uniformity in terms of the, the lived experience at that individual level. And while we love stories that feature those dramatic transformations, you know, 
hardship turning into success or individuals who bootstrap their way into the big leagues, there's no real evidence to suggest that those background experiences sufficiently explain future success. Now, going beyond genetics and the environment, um, do you think there's a brain chemistry aspect to this? Well, you're, you're quite right to ask that question, given my fondness for stories about, you know, putting electrodes into brains. And uh, I, I still think those lawyers were wrong to call my experiments uh, dangerous and unethical. My garage and the Black & Decker were perfectly clean, and most of my test subjects could walk unassisted within months. So it does seem that there is something to the idea of risk and reward and those dopamine production centers of the brain. But as Amelia Tate explains in The New Scientist, once again, we find as many questions as we find answers. In the way that we view rewards? That's one aspect. I mean, probably the more physical aspect. For example, if I offered you 100 ringgit to come and clean my house, you'd probably turn me down on the spot. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, But if I offered you 1,000 ringgit, you know, you might think about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but probably not terribly hard because you know that deep down I'm an awful person and that no amount of money is going to be worth that. Uh, but, you know, we process rewards in a very different way. We ascribe different values to the same reward. So for some people as well, the anticipation of the reward is actually better than the reality. So you think that an entire cream cake is going to make you happy, but when you get it, you know, it doesn't meet those expectations. You feel a little bit sad, in which case, you know, that could potentially be demotivating to you in the future and make you less likely to take on a task because you know the reward is likely to disappoint. Uh, and the other aspect, the, the dopamine? Well, the neuroscience of motivation is still developing. And it's not as simple as saying that this person has uh, an abundance of dopamine or produces an abundance while somebody else is dopamine deficient. Brain imaging results have suggested that many people at the opposing ends of the motivation spectrum produce roughly the same levels of dopamine. What's different is where in the brain the spikes in dopamine appear. In motivated people, you see those spikes appear in the reward center of the brain, whereas people who are less motivated to seek rewards, their dopamine spikes may be in areas that are related to processing emotions and to risk perception. Now, do you think it's possible to hack ourselves to better motivation? Well, some research is suggesting that neurofeedback training could play at least a small part. So Rachel Allison Adcock at Duke University in North Carolina, she's demonstrated that people who are shown real-time displays of their own brain activity were able to trigger and sustain dopamine production because they've seen the process. They understand mm. how their own brains work. And it's allowed them to remain motivated to carry out incomplete tasks for longer periods of time. So d does it then come back to basics like um, diet and exercise? Yeah, but even then we don't have a, a full picture. Certainly dietitians can help. But for example, my diet is fairly rich in the kind of proteins that are associated with being motivated. Uh, they're also rich in the CRISP-related uh, proteins that probably correlate to a lack of motivation. But 
as I explained earlier, I'm not exactly a paragon of motivation. So yes, exercise really does work. You exercise more and you have more energy. And, you know, I understand that at a scientific level, but I struggle with it philosophically. We know the dangers of sedentary behavior, but our evolutionary programming teaches us to conserve energy. So you have to be a motivated person in order to exercise to become a motivated person, which Mm -hmm. is why, you know, as I said, at a more philosophical level, it can be hard to get your head around. Now, this is all a little bit, you know, dispiriting. Have you got any good news about motivation at all? Well, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about mindfulness after the break and take a look at what the research and the science is saying about its effectiveness as well. Uh, Some motivation studies suggest that we can reward ourselves. Now, that hasn't worked out well for me because my reward is usually crisps. But Hmm. there's another suggestion that when you think positively, you should also try and think realistically. So you actually imagine the hurdles that you have to go through in order to reach that goal rather than simply focusing on the endpoint itself uh, because that can make it seem further and further away and it becomes something that's you know slightly fantastical and another suggestion is to imagine your future self and actually map out how you uh, think your future was what steps you took to actually get there But again, your responses to this kind of uh, suggestion are going to be very individual. I mean, if you look at those last three points, that essentially sums up what I do for a living. And while it helps me to create shows like this, it hasn't necessarily helped me to help myself. Look at that. You can learn absolutely nothing from science. And when we come back, less is more, more or less, on Matt Splained, on BFM 89.9. Behind Famous Men, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This is Matt Splained, and before the break, I think we learned that motivation is pointless, or or trying to be motivated is pointless. I I don't know what we'd learned. I I just really wish that we hadn't learned what we didn't learn, Matt. Well, that's why you need to be more mindful. You're thinking too much. You're taking things too seriously. Am I thinking too much, or are you just deliberately trying to wind me up? You see, even thinking about taking things less seriously is making you miserable. I don't think I'm I'm making me miserable. I think an external source is making me miserable, and it might simply be easier to disconnect this core and sever that external source. Well, before I create my first on-air nervous breakdown, uh, a serious question. Have you tried mindfulness before? Oh my word, it's, it's one of those words that keeps creeping up and it, I feel like it haunts me. I've tried it, yes, once or twice and yeah, no, it doesn't seem to be for me. Well, I mean, it's something that I've tried uh, quite often on and off over the last five or six years and I have a similar reaction to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've always been one of those people who's tried it on my own using uh, guided apps or books, that kind of thing. So I'm not sure if I just do it wrong or I'm just one of those people it doesn't work for. But I actually find it increases my anxiety levels. 
And it does seem to be that a small percentage of people who try mindfulness do experience these adverse effects. But it is a very small percentage. It's around 8%, uh, I believe. So That's interesting. Yeah. So during that time that I've been trying and failing, uh, my mindfulness and mindfulness meditation have gone completely mainstream. You know, mm. the proliferation of app-based mindfulness programs, uh, they're even on some of the, stra- uh, the streaming platforms now as well. Uh, doctors prescribe mindfulness. It's available in uh, schools and workplaces in some countries. And with that explosion in popularity has come a lot more research into its effectiveness. And more importantly, the ability to run meta-analysis over multiple studies. So is it as effective and calming and balancing as some of these claims suggest it to be? Well, regular listeners to the show will probably know how I'm going to respond to this because it's my favorite answer, which is yes and no. Um, Firstly, you know, there's a, a hint in the name, mindfulness practice. To reap the benefits, you have to put in the work. You have to practice. It's not something that, for most of us at least, we're going to see incredible benefit from just from doing it a handful of times. Which is why that, uh, I assume, teaching component is critical. Well, you know, you're, you're putting your mind into a state that you're not used to, and not all of the mindfulness apps are really thorough in terms of guiding you to do that. Uh, most of the experts seem to recommend uh, in-person mindfulness coaching, Obviously, that's very hard for those of us experiencing lockdown, but we can look for online coaching and classes, assuming that we have the disposable income to do so. So back to that question about effectiveness, and I'm referencing a a New Scientist article called The Mindfulness Revolution by Joe Marchant here. One of those meta-analyses that was published, uh, I think, at the start of 2021, looked at 130 different trials that included uh, over 11,000 participants. And they concluded that mindfulness does help to improve conditions like anxiety, uh, negative mood, but they didn't find a lot of evidence for things like improving memory. So for many of us, we should probably temper our expectations of what it can and can't do. To an extent. I mean, it's similar to what we were saying about motivation. You know, we Mm. don't all respond in the same way to the same stimuli. Our brains are wired differently. Mindfulness is about, you know, being in the present, being more aware of yourself and your body. So, of course, that's going to work in different ways for different people. And, of course, more effectively for some people than others. Even that process of learning how to be mindful we don't all learn in the same way. So as with any subject, you may have to shop around, as it were, to find a teaching approach that actually works for you. You know, I've had plenty of uh, teachers and counsellors who think it's helpful to tell me to relax. Mm. And telling me to relax is an existential nightmare because I have no idea what that means or how to do it. And that's exactly the reason I'm seeing that person. I want their expertise in order to learn how to relax. So in what areas then are we saying mindfulness has the biggest impact in in terms of proven results? Well, I think this is where that that guiding part of the process comes in. So uh, Willem Kuyken of the uh, Oxford Mindfulness Centre at the University of 
Oxford, you see that this is how mainstream mindfulness is, that it's got its own centers at places like Oxford University, University. So again, quoted in the New Scientist, uh, he says that the evidence is actually robust for showing that treatments like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is as effective as treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy or therapeutic drugs when it comes to managing conditions like depression. So while we're saying temper expectations that this isn't some kind of you know magic bullet in terms of treatment, saying that uh, it is as effective as the current gold standard interventions in mental health treatment means that they are still enormously powerful. So um, how effective is it then when it comes to treating other long-term conditions, you know, chronic pain, for example? Well, as I mentioned before, and, and why there are parallels here to motivation, one of the reasons it's hard for neuroscientists to measure the effectiveness of mindfulness is that just like dopamine production and motivation, different things are going on in different people's brains. When it comes to chronic pain, that is something that neuroscience can use brain imaging to assess. So the Center for Mindfulness at the University of California, San Diego, has conducted imaging experiments where they induce pain in volunteers. Uh, I've actually taken part in something a little bit similar, although without the fMRIs, uh, when my brother was doing research into pain management techniques, although being related to me, he didn't tell me that the purpose of the experiment and the exercises were to actually cause me pain. (laughs) Yes, we laughed. Um, The researchers at the uh, University of uh, California used various control groups. Uh, Some groups were taught mindfulness practices, Others were given a placebo uh, and others were instructed to use deep breathing techniques. Presumably whilst they were uh, uh, inflicted with pain. Well, yeah, and uh, this was conducted with hundreds and hundreds of people and the results seemed to be quite uniform. With as little as an hour of mindfulness training, the measurable pain was reduced. So, as I said, the volunteers are being scanned at the time. So, you know, you can see those pain receptors flashing in the brain. What I think is astonishing is the degree of reduction. Their reported pain was eased by around 45%, which the UCAL team estimates to be around double the efficiency of a clinical dose of morphine. And as we know, that is one of the most powerful painkillers that we have. So does it operate like a painkiller by encouraging the release of our our own opioids? No, uh, other non-pharmaceutical approaches to pain management, things like hypnosis or even uh, placebos, essentially trick the mind into releasing those opioids. Mindfulness seems to work on the emotional impact of the pain, so it's working on different parts of the brain. This is something that I've discussed with my brother off and on over the past few years because I, I find it fascinating. The idea that we don't so much try and reduce the pain we change the way that we feel about the pain. Mm. seems to be an approach that's being echoed in the mental health profession as well. For example, new treatments into uh, PTSD using combinations of behavioral therapy and psychoactive drug treatments, which don't focus on suppressing the traumatic memories, but concentrate on removing or reducing the emotional effects that those uh, those memories link to. Right. You know, it's often easy to overlook the fact that many long-term and chronic conditions, 
do have those mental health components. So as well as that ability to manage the pain by changing the way we think about it, it could also help to prevent people from falling into those traps of anxiety and depression that often accompany those conditions. So I, I assume going back to what you were saying about practice, there aren't any shortcuts then? For mindfulness itself, no. If you want to achieve one of those transcendent states where you lose that sense of self, it's probably going to take you years and years of practice, which is why I said earlier it's so important to temper your expectations. Doing that regular, consistent practice will have benefits for the majority of people. Those benefits may not be enormous, but they will be tangible. You know, it's a bit like taking paracetamol when you have a, a headache or a minor injury. It right. doesn't fix you, but it helps you to deal with the problem. Uh, but researchers and scientists are looking at other ways to enter those transcendent states. Is that why you referenced uh, PTSD earlier? Yeah, so we've reported in the past about medical trials involving prescription drugs like ketamine and other so-called psychedelic medications. Again, because this is a relatively recent and emerging area of treatment, and because many countries have very strict controls concerning the use of these drugs, we're seeing a lot of headline-making claims, uh, similar to the early days of mindfulness, about the effectiveness of these treatments, but mm. really need a lot more research to be done before we can truly assess how effective those treatments are. And that brings me back for you know the, the to the reason really for doing this show today. We've seen results of research from China, the US, Italy, you know, countries that were hit very hard by COVID-19 early on, where we've seen huge increases in rates of mental health crisis, substance abuse, and cases of PTSD. So it's hard to quantify the effectiveness of mindfulness during this lockdown. But the results that researchers have been able to glean suggest that people who are naturally more mindful have suffered less anxiety and depression. So without wanting to fall too much into the area of correlation and causation, uh, certainly, you know, apart from that small percentage of people who experience negative effects from mindfulness, it is something that many people could see benefits from, even if it is just in terms of connecting them to their emotions and giving them that ability to examine why they may be having these negative thoughts or emotions in the first place. And of course, preventing or controlling conditions like depression and anxiety, which can in turn lead us to become less motivated. And that, I think, is an enormous win. Interesting stuff. Thanks very much, Matt. Thank you. Now, you can find Matt on Instagram and in, on his couch and on Twitter at CultureMatt. Uh, you can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. Yeah, please, for, please don't come and find me on my couch. <laughs> for BFM 89.9, I'm Rich Bradbury. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.